This year I've been focusing a lot of my word, uh, my sermons with you on the kingdom of heaven. And the reason for that is that it is the main message that Jesus preached when he was on this earth. He didn't talk about healing. He didn't talk about salvation. He didn't talk about marriage, finances, as much as he talked about the kingdom of heaven. It was his number one theme of all his preaching. It was the main focus of his mission here on earth. It was to help us understand and to help us grasp the fact that there is a different kingdom that exists that is not visible with our naked eyes. You won't see the kingdom until you're born again, unless you're born again. It's a different reality. I don't want to use the word dimension, but it is a different reality that exists that we need to be plugged into. Our thinking needs to be transformed with. Our spirit needs to be made alive in it so that we can function, be, breathe, live, express, fully engage with this kingdom. Everything else we preach, everything else we teach is a subset of that. I'm going to pound at this until we come to the place where it becomes our heartbeat. You know, uh, at the time of Jesus, there were multiple cultural systems in society. And it's no different today. We are a nation that is known to be multicultural. What determines today which of the cultures dominates or is the main expressed culture? In Quebec, we have given Quebec nation status and given Quebec as a nation, Canada, we have in, 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 in embedded in our charter the fact that Quebec has a different culture, a different language. So Quebec has its own set of rules that we have set aside, Quebec, to be able to live out. What about Ontario? What about the rest of the provinces and territories? What is the prevailing culture in those areas? What is the prevailing culture here? Is it the English culture? Is it the French culture? The Dutch, the German, the Spanish? These were the first people that came. Is it the First Nations culture? Well, it seems that within the context of multiculturalism, we don't have a real clear sense of which culture or which set of values rule. And I don't mean rule as in, you know, dominate, but rule as in they become the norm that everybody lives under. Or do we just dumb it down to the most or the least common denominator? What is the cultural expression of a nation, of a city, especially a city like Toronto where we are considered by the UN to be the most international city in the world? So what are the cultural systems? At the time of Jesus, there were three main ones, and that's why I have the word main up there. There were three main systems, cultures, cultural systems, 
that were governing or affecting people and their lives. The first is the government. The second was the economy. And the third was religion. It doesn't seem that much has changed. It seems that it's the same kind of system that we find ourselves in. But let me break it down because these may be two big words for us to understand. Can you see the, the words okay? Okay. Government, economy, and religion. The government was Rome. Even though Israel was a kingdom that God had established, the governing authority in Palestine at the time of Jesus, in, you know, we don't call it Israel, at the time it was called Judea, but after a few decades, the Romans had changed its name to Palestine to sort of crush the spirit of the Jewish people that were constantly in rebellion mode, trying to set themselves free. In the economy, it was business. It was the business owners, the market. It was what we would still recognize today. Now, it's not Rome for us. It's Ottawa or Queen's Park or City Hall. But that's where the seat of government is today. And as far as religion, it was the Sanhedrin, the holy of Israel, the holy people of Israel, the priesthood and the governing council of the Sanhedrin. As far as religion today, if you're Catholic, it would be the, the Pope, the Catholic Church. If you're evangelical, you have a little bit more independence. If you're a non-denominational church, you're totally independent. You don't account to anybody. Uh, that's not a good state. If you're a denominational church, well, there's the district superintendent and the national director and the international council and all of these things. But you're part of a system. Rome exercised power. It had its own set of laws. It had its own set of rules, demands, expectations. It levied taxes. It controlled how people moved from one place to the other. It controlled how people lived in a specific place. It exercised power. That power was exercised by the use of the sword. The Roman soldiers would come in and they would walk in their battalions into a city and you can hear them clang, 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 all their metal, all their swords and their chest, uh, what do you call it, plates and the, the, the shield and all of the rest of that. And sometimes they, if they clang their sword against their shield during a riot or something, but they're trying to express the fact that they have power. So when it comes to the cultural system of government, it is about the handling or the manipulation. I don't want to use the word manipulation because in your mind it could mean the misuse. I mean the manipulation in the same way that a chiropractor would manipulate your back. Okay, you with me on that? So it is the handling of power. The culture of government is the culture of who has power and who is under the power. Business is about the manipulation or the handling of money. The largest company today or the largest business owner then would be the most powerful in that economy. That's a different cultural system. And you can think of different countries. I'm not just thinking of Canada. You can think of different countries and how they express today. Government expresses power. 
Think of some of the countries that you're familiar with, some of the countries you've come from, some of the countries in the news. Government has power. The economy, business has the money. The more successful the business, the more power it has, and that's what they manipulate. That's how they, they handle. And the Sanhedrin, the religious, it's a manipulation, or not manipulation, it's the handling of the idea of God. Now for Israel, it was through the revelation that they had through their prophets and through their, their history, through their covenant. But in a lot of parts of the world, it becomes about the manipulation and the handling of the idea and the theories about God. In India, how many million gods? Is there a pope? No, there are different orders and they can give you different advice and you can worship all kinds of different things. In different religions, it's the same. So far, so good? Let's focus on one of these religion. In different parts of the world, religion, different religions, not just Christianity, but different religions, express their theory of God and his contact with humans through three main ways. And the culture that you are in, the culture you have come from, determines which of these three become the overarching or the big controlling aspect of your way of thinking and your worldview. And these three are guilt, shame and fear guilt and, and shame and fear if you're from the west you deal with a lot of guilt law is very important to you right and wrong is very critical in the way that you think and you also judge people we also judge people based on a standard that we have and that standard in our minds is binary it's either black or white guilty or innocent which is it how we land on this we judge very quickly and it's interesting that Jesus told us not to judge but we judge very quickly you see something and you make an assessment real quick guilt and innocence if you're from the East, Middle East onward, you're likely have been raised in a culture of shame and honor. You would never dare question your seniors. You would never dare to think that you know, well, you might think that you know better, but you would never confront the older generation with what you know is better. That would be shameful. Now these three interweave, they're not separate. The reason that you honor is because you don't want to feel the guilt and the shame of dishonoring your seniors. 
And in the south and in the tribal regions, Central and South America, Africa, tribal nations, fear and power. Everybody fears a supernatural. They don't know what's coming tonight. It's a full moon and who knows what's out there. And it's, an, it's a concept that I cannot overcome these things that happen in the darkness. Maybe I should go see the witch doctor and have him or her cast a spell or say an incantation or something. I'm generalizing. But you understand what I'm trying to get at. There is three systems in the world. And these are, you know, how we all have our personal understanding and worldview. These actually are societal. And they're groupal, if I can put it that way. They're not individual. They're the majority extent of what that group feels like. I was just in Korea two weeks ago. And one of the things that we were dealing with was this whole idea of shame and honor. And it is so ingrained in the culture that they have inherited from one generation to the other. Let me explain. Confucianism is so ingrained in their thinking that even within the church, when their mind has been transformed and their spirit has been born again, the ideas that they have grown up in, for generations they could be Christians, but the societal influence of the culture that they were living in, even though a lot of times in China and in Asia, atheism rules, and in South Korea, you can't look anywhere without seeing a sign of a cross on top of a building. But there is something still ingrained in their culture and in their mindset of shame and honor. Pastors would get up with their wives on the stage and the pastor would stand here and his wife would stand three feet back. If he had a son, the son would stand next to him. If he had a brother, the brother would stand next to him. The male honor, especially if you're older, the patriarchy was prevailing in that culture and they were stuck in it. Now God wants to do different things. He wants to bring a different kingdom, a different culture, a different mindset into his body so that there is a restoration of the order of creation and the restoration of the kingdom's order in the life of people. Why am I harping on this? Because each one of us comes into this meeting. Each one of us comes into this church. Each one of us comes into our relationship with God and with one another with one of these prevailing or predominant ways of thinking and seeing the world. And unless something exposes it, we're stuck in it. One of the biggest challenges and this has been a journey that the church in Korea has been going on for years. One of the biggest challenges is identifying the role of the next generation. It's a very big challenge. We're dealing with that here. Even in this church. What is the role of the young people in this church? I made a comment in one of our last leadership meetings that when I was even younger than Aaron, 
I was involved in leadership to a great capacity and about his age, I started to, my pastoral ministry, a few years older, but not much. How much voice does Aaron and his generation and the generation younger have in the direction of this church? Katya, Alexi, Alina, as I look around the room, Sela, what is your voice and how is it heard in this generation, in this time in the church? Why? Doesn't it, didn't God give authority to the leaders? Yes, he did. But here is the balance. And this is the struggle that the Korean pastors, senior pastors, the ones that founded their churches, that have raised it for 20, 25 years, have been struggling with because they don't know. They haven't got a model. They haven't got an example in front of them. Now take this to the home. How do you as parents raise up your kids to have a dialogue with them so that they know that they have value? So that they know that they can have power in the home? Not power to rule over you. How do they have honor in the home because they're constantly giving you honor you expect that from them i'm your parent you can't talk to me that way that's the negative side right how do you provide them the space where they can function in innocence as opposed to constantly expelling to uh, expressing to them that you're guilty what you've done is wrong Think of it from the micro to the macro. It's the same thing. What happens in the home, what happens in the culture, what happens in the church, it's all the same thing. And the kingdom of God has come into this place where this dynamic of the Sanhedrin and the expression of God and how it rules over me needs to have been impacted by the kingdom of God to change my own thinking first. I don't mean just me as your pastor, but I mean me as you, each one of us. So how does that work? The biggest struggle that they were having is the balance between the feeling, and this is what I felt when I was there. As they were talking, one of the interpreters, a young lady who, had, who was a missionary, in the UK, you know, Korea is one, was, I don't know if it still is, but was the largest sending nation. The sending nation means the missionaries that were sent out of Korea, South Korea, were more than any other nation in the, the, at that time. More than the US or England or the UK, more than Canada. They had missionaries all over the place. If you go to Istanbul, the house of prayer in Istanbul was established by Koreans. If you go to Armenia, same thing. They have been establishing the kingdom outposts all over the world. They have missionaries. We met a young guy who has gone to uh, Myanmar as a missionary. His name is Sam. His last name is Sung. Okay, you made the connection. His full name is Sam Sung. But anyway... It's a Korean company, but that's, what he, that's his name. And he has gone to Myanmar, learned their language, learned their culture to serve them and bring Christ to them. They're the largest sending nation. So in that context, they were trying to figure out how they can remain responsible as the senior pastors 
who are the fathers of that church and the fathers of the church culture in Korea. How do they maintain their place of authority before God and the responsibility before God and yet give room for all these other things? So this young missionary had gone to study in the UK and because of honor and shame, her parents got really upset when she wrote to them and says that she's falling in love with another Korean young missionary studying with her in the UK. And they said, we don't want that for you. We want you to marry a rich man, a businessman, so that your life is set. What is she to do? Well, the law is if you have the same last name in Korea, you cannot get married to one another. Did you know that? Such a thing exists? That was the law then. And her parents, they did not want her to have anything to do with this guy. She's stuck. The reason I think part of it is because of the family trees and the DNA and they don't want the mixture and the, or the intermarriage of certain family trees. Anyway, that's a separate discussion. Don't get distracted by that. But her parents didn't want it. So honor and shame. She wants to honor her parents. That's the culture she's raised in. But she knows what she's feeling inside. She has prayed. She's asked others to pray. They tell her that this is the man that God has put for you, for you together will have an amazing ministry and this is what you need to do. But she doesn't want to dishonor her parents. So she goes back home. Is she going to be innocent in their eyes because of what she's doing? Who has the power? She has fear. She's struggling with all of these different things. And finally she comes to the place that she surrenders to them. And she says, may your will be done. She ended up marrying that guy. And the law got changed. But her willingness to put it on the altar, I believe was one of the keys that God used to shift the culture in Korea. Nationally in the law. She was one of the strikes that God used to shift that law. Who knows? Anyway, but she was telling the pastors. She was a pastor's kid. Uh, sorry, she, yeah, she was a pastor's kid, a missionary's kid. And she was telling them, why don't you make room for us? Why don't you make room for us to be heard? We want to speak things to you. We have ideas. We have thoughts. It doesn't matter if you agree with us. Just let us be heard. In your home, do you make room for your kids? In your relationships with one another, husbands and wives, do you make room for one another? She was saying to them, husbands, listen to your wives. In Confucianism, it's a man and his father and his son and his brother. There's no mention of the wife in that equation at all. But in Christ, there's no male, there's no female. We're all one in Him. There's room for both. Yes, the head is the, the husband, the father of the house, but the body, the woman, represents the body. Just like Christ and the church. And Christ listens to the church. Interesting story. Are we together so far? I want to take us to Matthew 14. 
Christ listens to the church. Do you know the story that one time Jesus sends the disciples off in a boat and he tells them he'll meet them on the other side and then there's a storm and in that storm the story is that Jesus comes to them on the water and then Peter ends up walking on the water. Do you remember that story? Okay. Do you know how that played out? Oops. I think you guys are running ahead of me, so I'm going to just uh, mute this. Okay. How did that play out? Most of us think that Jesus was on the water, the disciples were in the boat, they saw Jesus, they thought it was a ghost, and, and then Jesus says to Peter, come here. And Peter comes. Right? Sounds right. Let's read it together. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. By himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already consider a considerable distance from the land. Buffeted by the waves because of the wind against it. Now we can preach sermons about the buffeting of the wind that comes against us and how the winds of culture are constantly buffeting us. I'm not going to go there. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. So who's the first person that walked on water? Jesus. We know that. Okay. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Peter replies, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now Jesus could have simply said, it's okay, I'll come to you. No, Peter, this is my miracle. I'm the leader here. I walk on water. It's not your job to walk on water. You just stay quietly in the boat. I'm responsible. I don't know if you're going to make it. It might be too dangerous for you. If you walk on the water and if you, you know, stumble, you might sink. All the good things that we tell our kids not to get involved in something risky because of the risks involved. You with me? Okay. However, if it's you, Lord, Tell me to come to you on the water. Jesus listens to his body. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Wow. That's so cool. Jesus was asked by Peter, Lord, do this. It wasn't Jesus' idea. It was Peter's request. It was the desire of Peter's heart. Then Peter came down out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, and here's the sermon, when he saw the wind, how many of us, as we're receiving the miracle of God, as we've asked for the thing that we have been praying and longing for, as it's given to us and we walk in it, we begin to look again to the wind that was always there, and we stumble and we fall and we sink into the water. He was afraid 
and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Okay, a bunch of things in here. He looked at the wind. What happened when he looked at the wind? Afraid. Afraid. So when we go back to this and we see guilt, shame, and fear, fear is one of those things that finds its way into our imagination, into our heart, and even into our body. Have you ever felt, physically felt, pain, uh, fear? Anybody? Am I the only one? I'm not talking about just the heart, fast heart rate. I'm talking about all kinds of other manifestations. There is a physical expression of fear that we feel. There's also a physical expression of shame oops, and of guilt. Shame, your body immediately gives you away. Everybody around you knows when you're feeling ashamed. You don't even realize it, but your face tells everybody when it turns red. Uh-oh, he's ashamed. She's ashamed. Guilt? You know that look? That when the head just drops a little bit? So many times, yeah, guilty. <laughs> okay. But your body experiences these things. However, fear. Fear, shame, and guilt. These are all what? Feelings. These are all feelings. When Jesus confronts them, he confronts them not only because they are feelings, but because somehow in our understanding of this whole thing, we translate them to our place in these systems. What? Each one of us finds our place in this system somehow. And you can see that in the news today very clearly. In the U.S., you're either Republican or Democrat. You've identified yourself. So in the government system, there is an identity that you hold. You're either the voter or the politician. There is an identity. In the business world, you're either, let me put it this way. In the business world, it manifests itself in this way. Who has the most? Oh, I wish you could see these. They're so sad. It says power, riches, and God. You either have the most or the least power. The voters feel they have power, but at the end of the day, we've given up a lot of us on the system. We don't even vote because we don't believe we even have power as a voter. As far as rich, 
riches, it is the rich or the poor. As far as God, it is the priest. It doesn't matter what religion. If it's the Hebrews, uh, the, the Jew, Judaism, it is the priest and in the, in the individual. If you're living somewhere in the jungle and there's a uh, witch doctor, it's the priest and the individual. I want to change riches though, oops, to proud and humble. We good with that? I think Jesus talks about that quite a bit. You, you can't even see that, can you? Okay, give me one second. Pause for station identification. Take a minute, bow your heads and pray. It's not going to help. Okay, never mind. Take my word for it. This is what it says. Okay. Can you see that? No. By faith, you can see it. All right, now we can see it. Thank you. Yay! <laughs> I told you take a break and pray, and some of you did, and the answer came to quickly. Okay. Brilliant, no? Okay. Going back. Now you can see it. You can see what it says. You thought I was not creating decent slides, but it's actually the projector. Yeah. Okay. So going back to that. Each of us finds our place within these systems, and that creates our identity. Those with power and the government, and those without power. And then there's a scale of all of that in between. Different order, different ranks, different places. Somebody that works for the government as a government staffer or employee, we feel has more power because they're more connected to the people that are in the place of making the government authority. And, you know, and then there's the court system and the people in the courts. And a lot of us, when we go to court, even for a small thing, Many of you have had to go to court to get your status in Canada. And your body manifests different things. Fear, shame, or guilt. As you're sitting there being interviewed, you've left your old country, you've come to this new place, and you're sitting in front of this person that probably is not as qualified as you to make these decisions, but they control your future. They have power. And they're making the decision. Riches. You go to sit in front of your boss and you want to talk about a raise. But they have all the power. 
They control the dollars. And you're just you. And then the priest and in the individual. I mentioned I wanted to change the word rich and, and poor to proud and humble. Because a lot of time when Jesus talks about riches, he says it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of the needle than a rich person to go into the kingdom of God. He doesn't have anything against rich people. But he's simply saying that a lot of time the rich have an attitude that they deserve. An entitlement. So, but in, this is the, the system of this world. So let's just open one thing up. The reason I bring all this together is because there's something that God wants us to understand about identity. We find ourselves somewhere in this spectrum. Where do we fit in this spectrum? Am I the one with the least or am I the one with the most? Government power, authority, decision making, direction for the government, for, for the, the country, direction for my home. This could be for the home. Who has the power? I'm the parent. But it looks like the kids are controlling everything these days. I'm the one with the money. I go work hard. And you spend my money at home. Who's the priest? So identity is key. And how we see ourselves is key in this. I want to take us to a story real quick. And I realize I'm running out of time. So I'm going to just touch this and come back to it next time. And this is the story of Joshua. Joshua had just taken over or been given over leadership after Moses. This is Joshua chapter 1 verse 4. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean. That's a big chunk of land that God is giving the people of Israel. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, read carefully the next passage. Be, 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 and because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be, and be, Oh, <laughs> what happens? Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Peter, be strong and courageous and be careful. Oh, I, if I'm careful, I'm not going to step out of this boat. Careful to what? And be what? This is where it comes, this is where the rub is. It's all about the identity. He's telling Joshua to be these things. Your identity, Joshua, is a strong man. Your identity, Joshua, is a courageous man. Your identity, Joshua, is a careful to obey man. Your identity is these things. Okay? Why? So that you may be successful. Keep this law of the book on your lips. Meditate. Day and night. 
so you will be careful to do it. Everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be identity. Identity is strong. Identity is be courageous. Do not be. So what he's telling him here is be careful not to take on the identity of an afraid person. It's all about the way that we see ourselves and the kingdom alignment that we have. It's all about how we identify ourselves in these systems. Be, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Oh my goodness, there's such a story here. When he saw the waves, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He moved from his identity of being strong and courageous and bold to say, Jesus, tell me to come and I'll come to you to seeing the wind and becoming afraid. We flip-flop in identity. So, I'll stop here, but I'll pick up next week.